Well, uh, when the Titanic sank on the April 15th, 1912, in the icy Atlantic Ocean, 1,514 people died. Of that, 1,352 of them were men, and 109 were women. Now, you might at first think that this disproportionate amount of men um, dying, well, that makes sense because there would have been more men on the Titanic, and that's true. But if you look carefully at the statistics, they reveal a tale of gallantry. Of the 1,670 men on board, 1,352 of them died. That's 81% of the men. But of the 425 women on board, only 109 died, or 26%. Um, another way to say it is that only 7% of all the people who were on board at, uh, when the ship left, were, who died, were women. And this is because of the, the traditional and um, chivalrous response when a ship goes down, is that women and children first. And the Titanic didn't have enough life rafts, as you know, and people realized that, and so they just made, they didn't have to make a rule. It was just a policy that everybody understood, women and children first. And if there's any seats left over, that's when the men will um, get on board. Now, if you've ever watched the movie Titanic, which was the highest grossing film to that point, there is a distasteful scene in the movie where the antagonist, the bad guy, takes the seat on a life raft that should be going to a woman or child. And uh, so the filmmakers have to make him really, really bad. He's the bad guy. Everybody in the movie is bad. I can't think of one person who's good in the movie. Everyone's uh, doing all sorts of things they shouldn't be doing. But they wanted to make, out of all these bad people, the worst of them is this guy. And yet he was posing as a gentleman the whole time. And so this is the whole point, is that he's this gentleman. He's rich. He's sophisticated. Um, he's you know, schooled in the ways of, of um, high society. And yet when it comes down to it and the ship is sinking, his mask comes off and he is revealed as a hypocrite. And he, instead of being the one who uh, will give himself for others, as a gentleman should do, he instead uh, forces himself onto the boat in a place of a woman or child. And so uh, this is an apt illustration of how hypocrisy is exposed. When, when a ship is sinking and your life is in danger, it's amazing how all the masks fall off, and what remains is who you really are. And this is what Jesus warns about in Luke chapter 12. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Jesus has just come out of an excoriation of the Pharisees and the, um, the lawyers, the experts in the law, calling them hypocrites and exposing them their hypocrisy. So over the past few weeks, we were looking at the many ways Jesus warns that you can tell that you're a hypocrite and that you shouldn't be. Now what he does is, noticing this massive crowd of people, um, thousands of people that are gathering around, he wants to make the point that not only are the Pharisees and the Sadducees hypocrites, but you in the crowd are vulnerable to, to following their hypocrisy because their hypocrisy will spread. And so he, he turns his attention to the crowd now. So in verse 1 of chapter 12... It says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he, Jesus, began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. 
And I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. That's as far as we'll get tonight. We're going to look at four insights into hypocrisy so that you'll rid its destructive effects from your spiritual life. Four insights about hypocrisy. The contagion of hypocrisy, the culmination of hypocrisy, the cause of hypocrisy, and then the cure for hypocrisy. So firstly, the contagion of hypocrisy is what Jesus is warning us about. In verse 1, so many thousands of people had gathered. They're trampling on one another. It's this massive crowd of people. Now Jesus is becoming more and more popular, and the Pharisees are becoming more and more jealous of him. This is going to lead to the reason why they want to um, have him executed. But he starts saying to his disciples first, and the implication is he's talking to the group around him, his own disciples, and then the crowds, and this is a a message he's going to start preaching to people. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. A fish rots from the head, and hypocrisy trickles down from leaders to followers, and Jesus knows this. This crowd is in danger of becoming hypocrites. Why? Because their religious leaders are hypocrites. And we won't go into all of that. That's the, the, the past couple of sermons is that Jesus pointing out that these are the people that just, they love the seats of honor and they, they make up rules and burdens and put them on people, but they don't actually care about the people. They don't want to help the people. They want them, themselves to look holy. They don't actually want to be holy. And he, Jesus is concerned for the crowd that they will learn this from their leaders. So he calls them leaven. Beware of the leaven. So the leaven he's talking about is the hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is contagious. So why is he using leaven? Leaven is one of his favorite metaphors. It would have been a very, very commonly understood um, part of everyday life in Palestine at that time, in Israel. And for us, maybe uh, some of you know how to bake bread. For most of us, bread is just you know, it comes out of the wrapper. That's where bread comes from. But they would all know, everybody, in his, everybody who heard him say, beware of leaven, would be familiar with what it is. You don't just get bread in their day. We just buy it, butter it, eat it. No problem. Um, here's a little bit of baking 101. You have to crush wheat until it's fine. We call that flour. And then you have to mix it with water. Notice I'm reading my notes because I don't actually know how to make bread. Um, you mix it with water until it becomes a sticky paste. We call that dough, and then that slowly dries, and it hardens, and if you just leave it to die, you stick it in an oven, it comes out, and it's just flat. We call it unleavened. It looks like a piece of pita, maybe, and, um, and it's crispy. So if you want it to be fluffy, the way we think of a, a, you know, a bread roll or something that's squishy and yummy, um, you have to put a little bit of leaven in. So leaven, you would get a little uh, mushy bunch of it, People would share it with one another. You know, people who do sourdough loaves know how this works. Um, And in this little smushy, fermenting piece of dough, there's just billions and billions of little bacteria. And so you stick this in your dough, your fresh dough that you've just made by grinding the flour and adding the water, and and you just leave it. And what happens is those little billions of um, microbes 
they start to multiply and they become gazillions of microbes. And while they're doing that, they're just having a party. You know, they're just, they're eating some of the dough, they're digesting the dough, they're pooping out the dough uh, that they've just eaten, they have little farts, little gas, the gas gets trapped in the dough, making little bubbles, and which makes it expand. And so when you are biting into that yummy bread roll, you are biting into bacteria fart. Um, it's just, it's science, I'm sorry, it's just what it is. But the point is that these little animals that are making this grow, you just need a little bit to put in there, no matter how big your loaf is, because it's just going to spread. They're just going to keep on multiplying, they're going to keep on doing it, the thing's going to keep on rising and rising as there's more and more of them doing their thing until you, you stop it and you eat it. And so Jesus' point here is that the, that's what hypocrisy is like. If you have a, a crowd, even of thousands and thousands of people, there's so many people, it says that they are trampling one another. This is like a... This is like a concert, you know, I mean, there's just like people, you can't move, you're all just packed there. And Jesus says that all it takes is a little bit of hypocrisy, and that hypocrisy will eventually spread throughout this entire crowd. And don't we see that in churches sometimes? You know, you'll see a church, and maybe you try to join a church, you go visit, and you notice that a person that you sit next to in the pew, they're, they're kind of legalistic. They, they don't like that... You, they have to move. They tell you, well, this is my pew. You need to sit somewhere else. And maybe they tell you, next time you come, you're going to want to dress a little differently. You want to dress a little bit more formally. And you're like, oh, okay, whatever. And then you start meeting. And eventually you realize, you know what? This whole church is like this. And if you keep going there, you will be pressured into becoming like that as well. That's how hypocrisy spreads. When people focus on externals, that becomes the culture. And they teach that to other people, and they teach it to their kids, and they teach it to their friends, and they be, there's like a peer pressure into it, and it, it's just what happens. But it starts with the leaders. So if the Pharisees are the leaders, and they're hypocrites, of course the people are going to be hypocrites too. You're never going to have a congregation that's way more mature and godly than the people leading the congregation. And so that's what's happening here. He's warning about that. In 2 Corinthians 11:13, Paul says that such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 11:13, that there are actually people who disguise themselves as sent ones of Christ. And that was happening in the New Testament. Paul has to say in some of his letters Hey, I'm writing this with my own hand. This is actually from me. It's not, it's not one of the fake letters that people are claiming. And in other letters he warns, he says, even if you get a letter that claims to be from me, if it's contradicting the gospel, then you know it's not from me. So there were people that were pretending to be apostles. People that were writing um, letters pretending they were Paul. False apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Jude, the writer Jude, calls them hidden reefs in your love feast. A reef is, uh, you know, if the ship is trying to avoid a reef, you look down, you can see the reef, but if there's seaweed there or the water's murky, you can't see it, and that's dangerous. That's what it's like to have false teachers among you. They're in your love feast. They're taking communion with you. They're part of your congregation. They're people that you just you think of as normal, but they're like hidden reefs. They're actually dangerous. 
So that's the first insight to hypocrisy is that it's contagious. You need to look out for it in your own life and you need to not teach other people to be hypocrites either. Secondly, the culmination of hypocrisy. This is another warning. Verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed in the housetops. If hypocrisy is the train, then the final station is exposure. That's the culmination of hypocrisy. That's what Jesus is warning about. Be careful, because the stuff that you, you think nobody else knows about, you're such a hypocrite, you've learned your hypocrisy from the Pharisees, you've got this external um, appearance that's godly, but internally you're, you're, you've got all these hidden sins, you're saying things in secret, gossiping, the type of stuff you would never say you know, to other Christians, but in secret you're saying these things. Well, imagine that there was a little recorder. It's not hard to do these days with all the, <laughs> the ways our phones listen to us and stuff. But imagine there's a little recorder listening to all the stuff that you say in private and then broadcasting that to everybody. Have you ever uh, dialed somebody by accident and maybe that's happened to you, somebody called, you, you answer your phone and they don't know that they've called you and you can just hear what they're saying. They're just driving their car, guy's chatting to his wife and you're just listening and you know that you should hang up but then you remember this verse and like, no, actually that guy's going to get what's coming to him for what he's saying about me and now I can hear it or whatever. That, you have to picture that. You have to live your life as if everything that you say is going to be broadcast because in a very real sense it is. In a very real sense it is. In judgment day at least. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul said, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who will judge me. And so he, he refers to this judgment day that's coming. And he says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And Paul's talking about it in a positive sense that you might be accusing me of something, you might be suspecting me of something. Well, Judgment Day will show that, will show that I had the right motives, will show that I wasn't doing what you're accusing me of. But conversely as well, well, if you do have wrong motives, that's going to come out in Judgment Day. So Paul says, don't judge people prematurely. How does he say it? Um, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Don't try to judge people's motives. You can, you can make an accurate judgment about their behavior if, if their behavior is sinful. But if they're doing something that's not sinful, you can't say, well, I think it's sinful because they must have bad motives. They must be hypocrites. Well, Paul says, that's not up to you. That's up to the Lord. And when he comes, he will disclose the motives of the heart. So he's saying a little bit more positively. Jesus is saying a little bit more negatively. You need to be aware that you're not a hypocrite because that hypocrisy is not going to stay hidden. It's going to come to light. You think that you can give and you can serve and you can behave in a way that looks godly and no one will ever know what's in your heart? Well, guess again. Verse 2 says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you've whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. I'm reading a book at the moment about um, preparing for college, preparing your kid for college. 
And there's a whole chapter on there on teaching your kid how to use social media. And there's a bunch of examples, like these horror stories of these kids that do so well at school and get these great grades and everything. And they're, they've got a scholarship that's promised them in their junior year. And then in their senior year, they do something that ends up on social media. And the people that gave them the scholarship pull the scholarship. And you, you think, this is in the bag. And then you make some sort of decision in your senior year, and you lose your scholarship over it. And how did they even know? Well, they just went on social media. The admissions boards, apparently, I didn't even know this, but it makes sense that they're notorious for checking their applicants' social media pages. And there was even a story in there of somebody who, who lost um, his scholarship based on something that he had said when he was 14 years old. But the person had scrolled all the way down and saw this thing. It was like, you know, we can't have people like that representing our school. Once it's out there, it's out there. So we don't know exactly what form this will take, this um, exposure, this judgment day, but you need to trust that the Lord's warning you. You can't be a hypocrite. It's going to come out. Thirdly, we see another insight here about hypocrisy, the cause of it. Why do people act like hypocrites? What's the cause? Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Now that's, that's interesting. It seems like a non sequitur there. Like what, he's talking about hypocrisy and now suddenly he's talking about people persecuting you. But I believe that they're linked. This is the cause of hypocrisy. This is why people do what they do because they fear man instead of fearing God. The root cause of hypocrisy is the fear of man. Think about it. Think about what a hypocrite is. We said that. The word hypocrite, it's the, the Greek word for acting. It's a, putting a, a mask in front of you. Remember, actors would have to show that they're smiling. They would hold up a smiling mask so that the people in the back could see because they didn't have zooming in capabilities. Um, and if you're sad, you hold up the sad mask. Those, those were called hypocrites. So then that becomes, well, you're just an actor. You're, you're, act, you're playing a part. That's what hypocrisy is. You're playing a part. Well, why do people play a part? Who are they trying to impress? It's not God. God sees the heart. So what are they? it's because they're trying to impress other people. They're trying to create an image for other people. They don't want people to know what they're really like. They want people to see this mask that they have, this veneer. And you see this throughout the, the Bible. You see the parents of the man born blind in John 9. Remember that? They, this is their son. He suddenly gets sight restored, and the Pharisees are questioning them. And the text tells us that they were afraid to answer because they were afraid that the Pharisees would put them out of the synagogue. I mean, they're more worried about their social status <laughs> and being kicked out of church than this amazing thing that's happened that their, their son who was born blind is now seeing. Pontius Pilate, he handed over Jesus the text tells us because he feared that the people would start a riot. He feared Caesar's wrath on him. I've been told to keep the peace here. If I can't keep the peace, I'm going to get in trouble. So he's not fearing God. He would rather kill God than deal with Caesar. He's fearing the wrong person, isn't he? Peter. Why did Peter deny Jesus three times? Jesus told him it was going to happen. You've got, if you were Peter, you know that you've, you're prepared. Whatever happens, I'm not going to deny Jesus. But he denies him three times, once to just some little servant girl. Why? Because he was afraid. 
Jesus had just been arrested. It was a fearful night. Now he's being associated. People saying, oh, weren't you with that guy that just got arrested? And he was, no, I, I don't know him. Leave me out of this. I'm just, I'm just here by the fire. I'm just warming myself. I'm just curious, just like you. Why would he deny Jesus? Because he was afraid of people. And Jesus says that this is missing the point because the worst that a human can do to you is kill the body. Isn't that what he says? I, um, because he says, I tell you, my friends, verse 4, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do with you. And it's such an interesting thing because Jesus has such an eternal mindset all the time that sometimes he says things that for the rest of us that are very earthbound in our thinking, it, it doesn't really quite make sense. I mean, imagine I, I said to my kid, um, oh, by the way, on Sunday we're going to have a meeting about going to Israel, so I'll talk to you about, a bit about that afterwards. But Im imagine this, I said, um, don't worry, if you go to Israel, the worst thing that can happen is that you die. Yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> what do you mean the worst thing that can happen is that you die? Well, the worst thing is that you go and they blow up the bus and we all die in a horrible, fiery death. So what are you worried about? Yeah, that, that, that's what we're worried about. But in Jesus' mindset, that's nothing. You're worried about, Caesar's worried, I mean, uh, Pilate's worried about Caesar. All that Caesar can do is kill you, maybe in a painful way. Then what? Then it's over. God will kill you and has the authority to throw you in a hell. That never ends. It's very, it's very calibrating, isn't it? Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You know, we humans fear death more than anything else. And yet most of us, most of us will sin for far less than the fear of death. We fear what people will say about us. No, nobody's even threatening to kill us. We're worried, what, people, what will people say? Or even worse, what will people think? A person's not even going to insult you, but you're still living in a certain way just so that they think a certain thing. What will the neighbors think about me? So the fear of man lays a snare, Proverbs 29, 25. A snare. Now, the fear of man can take many forms that causes hypocrisy. One is peer pressure. People do a lot of things because of peer pressure. Everyone else is doing it. All my friends are doing it. I don't want, to be, I don't want them to think I'm the chicken. I don't want to think that them to think I'm not cool, so I'm going to do the same thing. There's perfectionism. Perfectionism is a type of hypocrisy because you're not perfect, but you want people to think that you're perfect. So you want everything to be perfect that you do. If I'm going to do this project, I want it to be perfect. Why? Well, so that people will think I'm perfect. That's hypocrisy. Flattery. Flattery is hypocrisy. That's a fear of man. I want you to think highly of me, so I'm going to say something nice about you. I don't believe that about you. I wouldn't say that about you if you weren't in the room. Bragging. Bragging is from a fear of man. That's a form of uh, hypocrisy as well. You're, you're telling everybody how great you are. You're dropping into conversation. You're name-dropping those types of things, making people feel, oh, everyone thinks that I'm, I'm so in the know. 
lying that comes from the fear of man. People lie all the time because they're afraid what people will say or think. Eating disorders can come from that. Overwork can come from that, from man-pleasing. Overspending. Much debt is fueled by wanting to pretend that you are richer than you are. Dave Ramsey says that debt is buying stuff you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't even like. (laughs) What is that? That's the fear of man. i got to keep up with my in-laws. They're driving that kind of car. I don't want them to think that I don't work as hard as they do. I don't want to think that, um, you know, I don't want my in-laws to think that my wife married a loser, so I'm going to act like I'm a winner and become a loser to go into debt to, become, to look like I'm a winner. In John 12, 42, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is hypocrisy. That is the fear of man. John 12, 42. There were, there were even authorities who feared the Pharisees more than God. They wanted the glory that came from man rather than the glory that came from God. They would side with man and get what man has to offer and reject Jesus even though they believed in him. Isn't that amazing? It says that people believed in Jesus but would not confess it. So they knew that Jesus was making these right claims but they didn't want to side with him in public. Nicodemus comes to Jesus when? By night. You know what John calls him way later in the gospel? The Pharisee who came to Jesus by night. I mean, that's what John writes about him. Here were Jewish leaders who would rather look like they were worshipers of God in the synagogue than to actually be a worshiper of God and accept his Messiah. People are too embarrassed these days to be baptized. Have you heard that one before? I know the Bible says I need to be baptized, but I don't like to do those types of things in public. What you're saying is, I fear what people think of me more than I fear what God thinks of me. God says you need to do it. Yeah, but what will people think? Who cares? A, and B, everybody, have you, what I always say to people, by the way, when people want to get baptized, I would say 19 out of 20 of them <laughs> tell me, is there any way I can do this without doing it in public? <laughs> you know? and, and I have a little speech that always works. Um, and part of it is, you have seen baptismal testimonies. Where are you judging the way the person is talking? No, of course not. Where are you thinking... Man, this guy's really messing up this testimony. No, no one ever thinks that. No one ever does. So why do you think suddenly people are going to think that about you? Nobody's thinking that about you, A. And B, even if they were, Jesus hung naked on a cross for you. You don't think he would have preferred not to do that in public? And he's saying, I just want you to get wet and for me. And you're like, oh, what will people think? So if you want to be baptized, talk to me afterwards. Some people are too ashamed to evangelize. God says we should share our faith, and we know that there's an opportunity, but you think, oh, if I do this, people are going to think that I'm the holy roller, you know? I'm the one who's holier than thou. I'm the 
I'm that old-fashioned Christian who thinks things that aren't fashionable, so I'm just going to keep quiet in this discussion at work. You're fearing man rather than fearing God is what you're doing. So what is the cure for hypocrisy? We've seen the contagion and the culmination and the cause. The cure for hypocrisy Jesus gives in verse 5. I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The cure for the fear of man and its resultant hypocrisy is to fear God more than man. The only thing that sends a person to hell is their refusal to repent of their sin. It's too simplistic to say, well, what sends a person to hell? Sin sends a person to hell. No, because everybody sins, and yet there's lots of people who go to heaven. So it's not just sin that sends people to hell. Everybody sins, but it's when you refuse to repent of your sin that you go to hell. So fearing God's wrath leads to repentance. Because when you fear going to hell, that activates in you the desire to escape it, which draws you to Jesus Christ and repentance. So it's good to tell people of the consequences of their sin. And Jesus says that. He's saying it's good to fear God. It helps you to stop fearing man. If you fear God and what he thinks of you and what he can do to you, the only thing that matters to you is being right with God. It doesn't matter what the other people think. So you can say no to peer pressure. And you can overcome your perfectionism. And you can be honest instead of lying. And you can want to... Be good with finances rather than just look like you're good with finances. And your whole life can change. And you can do things entirely differently if you can just flip that switch in your mind to say, I actually fear what God thinks. And that if I'm not doing things right, he's going to get involved. Sometimes people say, well, you know, you don't want to preach about hell in case there's a visitor and it might scare them off. Good. I'm scared of hell. Why shouldn't they be? You see, if you're scared of something, you figure out how to avoid it, right? If you're afraid of heights, then you don't go up tall trees. If you're afraid of rats, then you figure out a way to make sure there's no rats in your house. That's good. So if you're afraid of hell, I'll tell you how to avoid it. Super easy. Repent of your sin and embrace Jesus Christ. It's not a... It's not scary, it's just one of the scary things out there. The other thing is to not know about hell, not know about the consequence and live your life like a hypocrite and then get faced with it on Judgment Day anyway. So the cure for any kind of hypocrisy is to fear God more than man. Colossians 3.22 says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people-pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. What a great verse for anyone who works in any employment. Colossians 3.22. If this applies to slaves, it applies to everything else. 
any kind of employment where there's someone over you that you're doing work for to look good in their eyes, what, what he calls people-pleasing. And eye service. Eye service is when you're all sitting around sipping coffee and the manager pulls in the parking lot and someone's like, code blue, the manager's here, and everyone gets up and starts working again. So when the manager comes in, woo, everybody's working hard. So why are you working then? To please the manager. And he's saying, no, you need to obey these people who are your earthly masters, the people that are over you here on earth, not just by eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Why am I working? I'm working because I love the Lord. And he's given me this job to provide for my needs. So I'm honoring him. I had a, a friend in school who was immune to peer pressure. He, um, we became friends later on. When he came to our school, he came in like grade 10, he made friends kind of with the wrong crowd at first and, and then later joined the right crowd because that whatever crowd I'm in, it must be the right one, right? But you know what I mean. He, um, he just came and he was like kind of a good-looking guy. He was very muscular. He swam for the national team, um, the national swimming team. So he gets in with this other group of guys, you know, the guys that are like smoking behind the bleachers, those kind of guys, and uh, bring alcohol to school and that sort of stuff. And, but he never drank. He never drank. He would even go out with them and they would go to clubs and everyone would get wasted and he would never drink. And years later, I asked him about that. I said, how did you, when you were friends with those people and you were going out with them all the time, how come you never drank? I mean, didn't they ever try to pressure you? He's like, they tried to pressure me all the time. They called me chicken. They, they called me all sorts of names, goody two-shoes. Eventually, he was kind of ostracized from their group because he was so good and he came to the right group. Um, but he said... The reason he did it was, the reason he ne never drank and he could stand up to them is because his coach had told him and the whole team, if I ever catch any of you drinking, you're off the team, the national te swim team. And he said he feared his coach more than he feared anything else those people would do to him. And so he, that's what Jesus is teaching us here. You need to calibrate your fear. It's natural to fear people. But you need to remind yourself that there's someone to fear more, someone that you don't want to disappoint. Because he didn't want to disappoint his coach and take the consequences that came from that, he was, a, he was completely immune to peer pressure. He only ever did what his coach wanted him to do. That's how we should live. We should be immune to man-pleasing. We should not care what people think of us. We should only care about what God thinks of us. Your fear of disappointing God and incurring his discipline will free you from the fear of men. That is the cure for hypocrisy. Knowing that God sees your heart, it doesn't matter what people think. That's the cure. So we've looked at the contagion of hypocrisy. It spreads. We learn it from one another. The culmination of hypocrisy is it will eventually be exposed, if not in this life and judgment day. The cause of hypocrisy is fear of man, and so the cure for hypocrisy is the fear of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these reminders um, in Scripture, and we do pray that you'd help us to uh, be honest with you and live lives of integrity, live lives that show what, what we are really like, and that we would fear you knowing that there's really nothing to fear because of what Jesus has paid for on the cross on our behalf.
and that we don't want to disappoint you. We want to live in line with our calling to please you. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, are there any uh, questions? In the, for the Q&A. Deb, you got, you got a question? Yeah. Shoot. What is the difference between believing in Christ and believing on Christ? No, uh, there's no difference. Just in, in older English, people used to say believe on something. Yeah. And in, we just say believe in something. Um, yeah, so if you read, usually if you see the phrase believe on Christ, it's going to be like something Spurgeon says or one of the Puritans or whatever. Um, I just, when I talk about believing in Christ, I try to always clarify what I mean by that because it doesn't just mean believing that he existed and believing his teachings and that because even the demons believe and they tremble. But to believe in him in scripture means that you're, you're trusting in him alone for salvation. So trusting in him for salvation. Yeah. Good question. Dave, did you have a question about predestination? Uh, <laughs> He saw me this morning and was like, are you ready for tonight's questions about double predestination? Um, any questions about the sermon on Sunday where we, just, we spoke about destiny? No questions? Good. <laughs> um, Brian, well, let me just mention, if anyone ever does ask you about the concept of double predestination, just so you know what that word means, in theology, sometimes people talk about that. They talk about God predestining people to salvation. And then the implication is that means that there's other people that are destined to not be saved. And so the, people are predestined to salvation. And then there's this like double predestination is what they call it. You're, there's other people that are destined to not be saved. And my response to that is just when you're talking about these kind of... Um, what's the word, these complicated, nuanced theological issues, you always want to try to use biblical terminology as far as possible because you can't defend a non-biblical position. You can only defend a biblical, we're only called to defend biblical positions. If a position isn't biblical, you don't have to defend it. So if somebody says, oh, you believe in predestination, that means you believe in double predestination, I can just say, nuh-uh. No, I don't. I'm not required to believe in the doctrine of double predestination because the word isn't used in Scripture. And you say, yes, but logically speaking, if you believe this, I'm like, well, you can do your logic all you want. My job is just to obey the Scriptures. And the Scriptures talk about predestination unto salvation. The next step, if it's not there, I don't have to worry about that. So I just don't talk about double predestination. I talk about predestination because that's a word used in Scripture, in Romans 8, for example, and Ephesians 1. Good. Uh, you had a question. Um, so let me just rephrase that. When you're talking about the incarnation of Christ, um, uh, you know, God in human flesh, what do you say to a person that talks about how that Christ would lay aside um, some of his 
divine attributes like omnipresence, which God is everywhere, and omniscience, that God knows everything, etc., etc. Is that that's your question? Um, so, again, the more biblical you can be in your terminology, the safer you are in those types of discussions. So, whenever you talk about any theological issue, you want to try to use biblical terminology as much as you can. And um, where am I going here? And so I would go to uh, Philippians chapter 2, and you, what you want to do is you want to phrase it a little differently. It's not that Jesus laid aside his divine attributes, because he, he didn't. He's fully divine. He's fully God. He just had his divine nature, and then he took upon him a second nature. So he doesn't, he doesn't empty himself of his divine nature. He adds to his divine nature a human nature. So he exists in two natures. Um, but in Ephesians 2, um, it says in verse 8, well, uh, let's just take it verse 6. Um, he was in the form of God. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death in the cross. So that's a passage we call the kenosis because it comes from the word that means to, to empty himself. So what I was taught in seminary is when you talk about these things, you just want to use very specific wording. You can say that Jesus laid aside, he voluntarily and temporarily laid aside the independent use of some of his divine attributes. That's how you say it. <laughs> so he voluntarily, it wasn't taken from him, temporarily, only in the time of his um, humiliation on earth, um, voluntarily, temporarily laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes. That's different from saying he laid aside his divine attributes. So he didn't lay aside omniscience. He laid aside the independent use of omniscience. So the way I've heard that described is, um, you know, he had the keys to the car at any time he could use it, um, but he chose not to use it at times. You know, um, why is my kid walking to the store? He has the keys to the car. He's voluntarily, temporarily laying aside the independent use of those keys. <laughs> um, so he has to ask my permission. Anytime you use an analogy, there's going to be problems with it, but uh, does that at least help answer your question? Jesus was always fully God with all of the divine attributes, but at times he chose not to use those divine attributes while he was on earth for a reason, because it was part of his humility. That's why he says things like, no one knows the day or the hour that the Son of Man will return, not even the angels or the Son of Man, but only the Father. You're like, well, how can he be omniscient and not know that? Well, I mean, when Jesus came out of the womb, he wasn't speaking every language that had ever been. You know, he had to learn Hebrew just like every other Hebrew kid. He had to learn how to walk and those things. He, he chose to do that. Does that answer the question for now? Good. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Let me just say it for the microphone. Um, 
Uh, how would people in the New Testament, like Mary and John the Baptist, for example, how much scripture, how much access would they have had to scripture? Um, because, you know, let's say women weren't allowed uh, into hear the scriptures read in, at in certain times in certain synagogues. So how would they know that? How come Mary knows the prayer of Hannah off by heart? Um, and John the Baptist is quoting Isaiah. Where did he hear Isaiah? How, how much of that was accessible and available in those days. And then you said something interesting, when it wasn't being taught in those times. So um, th I think that that's a very common misconception and it's probably come from stuff that I've myself have said from the pulpit where we, we talk about the New Testament times and the, the Judaism of the time as if the whole thing was shrouded in this darkness, you know. <laughs> but that's not really true. The people... It comes up a lot in the New Testament because the gospel writers are writing about the clashes that Jesus is having with the religious establishment. But these weren't the only Jews. They were faithful Jews. Um, yes, they turned against Jesus at the crucifixion, but um, they still knew their scriptures. There were a lot of the Jews still knew their scriptures. So a couple of things. One is how much scripture is circulating. Remember, we're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Um, and they were widely accessible uh, in Israel. They were copied. We have thousands of manuscripts that have been copied from the Old Testament. And there were people, the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers, these were people that grew up memorizing the scripture. So they would have known the whole Old Testament, usually almost all of it completely by heart. Um, certainly the Pentateuch they would know by heart. Um, and so they would, they would teach these. And even though people didn't necessarily have the scrolls themselves, they could go to synagogue where they were being read and memorized from young. So these kids were taught this at school. A lot, a lot of uh, Hebrew is easier to remember um, because of the sounds and the way it was written, acrostic poems that are written in certain ways to be m memorized. So I think a lot of Jews had a lot of scripture memorized. That's why you see them quoting. That's why you see Mary quoting an entire passage from 1 Samuel by memory because that, that was quite common. The problem was that they weren't connecting what they were reading in Scripture with what Jesus was claiming. So that's what you see the clash is about there. Um, Jesus reads Isaiah in the synagogue and says, this is being fulfilled in me, and they get offended by it. It's not that they didn't know it. They were expecting a political Messiah. So what happened is, by the time Malachi ends, he's the last prophet, you've got these 400 years before John the Baptist. And in this 400-year period, it's called the silent years because the, the Old Testament ends, the New Testament starts, and there's this intertestamental period where there's nothing in the Bible. But that doesn't mean there's nothing written in those times. In fact, I want to do an equipping hour on some of the stuff I'm learning at the moment about the Apocrypha and books that were included in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation that even Jesus would have used. Um, and pseudepigraphal writings, writings like First Enoch, which Jude quotes. So there were these other writings circulating at the time that the Jews used, and part of that is uh, recording the history of the Jews during that time. First and Second Maccabees, for example, um, talks about the Maccabean revolt and what happened. That's why they have Hanukkah. So by the time you know, and by the time you've got Jesus on the scene. They're already celebrating Hanukkah because of what's it in John 12 where he actually goes to the ceremony of lights. That's what that is. Um, and claims I am the light of the world. 
and their desire for a political Messiah, you sort of ask yourself, where did that come from? Because you don't see that in the Old Testament. Well, it came from the intertestamental period where Judas Maccabeus and his brothers led this revolt and they created this concept among the Jews that liberation from the oppressors is what the Messiah would do when he came. And that a, a pious response, a godly response um, for a Jew is a violent action um, to release yourself from the oppression of Gentiles. And that's what these guys did. And so that became part of the zeitgeist, the part of the, the way the Jews would think is that, yeah, it's good to be violent against the Gentiles to get rid of them and have a political Messiah come. So by the time Jesus comes, even his own disciples are doing that. One of, one of his disciples is a zealot who committed to those ideals. And by the time he's going up to heaven in Acts 1 verse 6, they say, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Like, hey, when, when are you going to do this thing where you throw off the Romans? And Jesus, wasn't, Jesus didn't care at all about the Romans. My kingdom's not of this world. And the disciples just didn't get that. Why? Because of that intertestamental period. So you didn't ask any of that part of the question, but that's what I'm studying for my exams at the moment, so it's coming out. Any follow-up to that? Does that make a bit more sense? Yeah, you, you, right. You have to remember that just like, I mean, imagine um, a thousand years from now, people talk about um, the Bible in America. And people say, well, you know, the, America in these years, they were taking you know, prayer out of the schools and the Ten Commandments were taken out of the courthouses and um, abortion had been legalized and transgenderism had, you know, and evolution was being taught in schools and all this stuff. And they say, you see, America... There were no believers during that time. Nobody knew the Bible. Well, what about us? <laughs> you know, we're a pocket of believers that don't believe in evolution and don't believe, uh, you know, we're against abortion and we're preaching the truth. Um, we're just not making the news. So it's kind of the same thing when you get to the New Testament and you're dealing with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers. They're the ones making the news. And Jesus is against them. They're the one running the temple. And the high priest is corrupt and all these things. But there's pockets of faithful people all over Israel still. And you kind of see that by how quickly the gospel starts spreading in Acts. Uh, Peter preaches and 3,000 people accept Jesus as the Messiah. He preaches again, 5,000 people. Like, these people weren't, they weren't against God. They were just waiting for the Messiah. And then we're told, yeah, that's who he is. We missed him. Boom, and they, they convert. 